Hello, and welcome back to a new episode of Hard Tack. I am your host, Mike, and with me as always is my friend and co-host, Sam. Welcome back, Sam. It's been some time now since we've recorded. How have you been? Yeah, really good. Um, I had a really nice couple of weeks break, so spent some time with some family and just did absolutely nothing, which I absolutely loved. (laughs) Good stuff. Um, How about you? Yeah, Sam, I went and stayed with my brother for uh, about a week and and spent the holidays with the family, and uh, it's been good to be back, but it was a very nice break, very nice couple of weeks off. All right, well, Happy New Year, everyone. We hope you all had a wonderful break, and we hope you're ready to get your fill of some hardtack, because I know we are. We've really missed this. Just a heads up, we do have episodes planned all the way through episode 40, and we are excited to share some more history with all of you. So let's get at it. Hardtack is a military history podcast and contains mature themes, content, and some crude language. Listener discretion is advised. We do not claim to be experts in any of the topics discussed. The opinions expressed are that of the participants alone. Now, put on your Kevlar, secure your lickies and chewies, and prepare to take cover for this episode of Hardtack. If you would like to add to the discussion from this episode or any of our previous episodes, you can do so on our hardtack socials found via our link tree in the episode description. You can also check us out on our website and leave us a comment at hardtackpod.com. We are always glad to hear from our listeners. Don't forget to drop a review on whichever platform you use to consume your hardtack and crunch that subscribe button. Thank you. The year 1915 was a significant year for the participants of the Great War and a great many memorable events occurred. The Gallipoli campaign commenced, along with the raid on the Suez Canal. The Second Battle of Ypres began. The RMS Lusitania passenger ship was sent to the seabed by a German U-boat, to name a few. So a lot was happening. The Great War was heating up. These campaigns, events, and battles are definitely areas of World War I that most military history enthusiasts have heard of. But have you heard of the Battle of Dogger Bank? In January 1915, a group of British Admiralty codebreakers known as Room 40 intercepted and decoded a collection of German wireless transmissions. The transmissions were quickly decrypted and the British learned of a secret German naval plan. The Imperial German Navy, or the Kaiserliche Marine, intended to send a German raiding squadron into the North Sea. Their destination was Dogger Bank, a large sandbank in the shallows of the North Sea just 100 kilometres, or 62 miles, off the east coast of England. Room 40's interception and decryption of vital German intelligence led to a ferocious naval battle between the British Royal Navy and the Imperial German Navy, and left over 1,000 men either killed or wounded. You're listening to Hardtack Episode 21, The Battle of Dogger Bank. Don't forget, if cryptology is your thing, and if you haven't already, make sure to go back and listen to Episode 8, Cryptology Operation Magic where Mike talks about the inner workings of Allied decryptions and analysis of Japanese signals in World War II. Very interesting stuff for the cryptology nerds. Check it out. 
the UK Imperial War Museum did a podcast episode called Voices of the First World War, War at Sea. If anyone is interested in listening to it, we will provide a link in the episode description. Essentially, it was asserted that the British Empire relied heavily on the control of the world's oceans to ensure prosperity and their influence of power across the globe. Before the First World War broke out, Germany and Great Britain were racing against the clock to build the biggest and best warships. Maritime tensions were certainly rising between Britain and Germany. So, many people expected in 1914 when war broke out, conflict would be navally focused. It was even speculated that the war would have been over within a few hours, and at the very most a few short months at sea. Louis West, who joined the Royal Navy in 1909, was one of the many men who were in favor of this notion. He said, quote, Well, I think the general opinion was it couldn't last more than three or four months. Everyone was of that opinion. We said, well, when they come out, we'll have one ding-dong battle and that'll settle the war. Hurry up the Germans and come out. That was our attitude. We thought we'd wipe the Germans out. Of course we did. No Navy like the British Navy, you know. We fully expected there to be a good ding-dong battle. Some of us wouldn't come back and the others would, but it'd be all over in a few hours. End quote. A fascinating concept. Little did he, amongst many, know that they were heading into one of the bloodiest conflicts that had ever been in human history. Not to mention, it would last a few years rather than months. Naval battles certainly had a place, though trench warfare looms large in the minds of many when considering the Great War. What kick-started naval warfare in World War I was the Battle of Heligoland Bight, fought on the 28th of August, 1914, in proximity of Heligoland, or Helgolander Bucht a small archipelago in the North Sea. Interestingly, it wasn't too far from where the Battle of Dogger Bank later took place. So earlier we mentioned Room 40. Let's take a look at the origins of Room 40, how they came to be, and their contributions in World War I. Room 40 was founded in October 1914, just a few months after the First World War broke out. It was initiated when Director of Naval Education Alfred Ewing a Scottish physicist and engineer who enjoyed creating ciphers, received intercepts from the G- German radio station at Nauern, close to Berlin, from Rear Admiral Henry Oliver, Director of Naval Intelligence. Ewing enlisted the aid of lay people like publisher Nigel de Grey and theologian William Montgomery, who translated religious writings into German. The signal book, Der Kaiserlichen Marine, or the SKM, was a seized German naval codebook, and maps with coded squares that Britain's Russian allies pass on to the Admiralty served as a foundation for Room 40 activities. This equipment had been taken from the German cruiser SMS Magdeburg by the Russians after it grounded off the coast of Estonia on August 26, 1914. About 50 professional cryptanalysts and support personnel worked around the clock shift schedules in Room 40. Daily summaries, spot reports, and special reports were produced by them. Reports were based on the raw data provided by the British Isles Base Intercept and DF stations in Lowestoft, York, Murkart, and Lowick. The practical cryptanalysis procedure in Room 40 was substantially aided by the recovery of cipher and code books from abandoned or combat-damaged German zeppelins, submarines, and surface ships. It was believed that following the war, Room 40 had deciphered over 15,000 German diplomatic and naval messages, a significant number given the recoveries were produced by hand. Two of Room 40's most notable accomplishments were the decipherment of the notorious Zimmerman telegram and its aid to the British victory in the Battle of Dogger Bank. So, very fascinating indeed. What do you think, Mike? (laughs) In, In American history, the Zimmerman telegram, notorious is the word. It really is. Yeah. Um, I mean, th- th- this is what really 
pushed the American people over the edge while the government was trying to, to, to build support for our entrance into World War I. I had no idea mm -hmm. that this was a Room 40 uh, decipher um, decipherment. I, I, I had no idea. Um, yeah, that's, that's pretty incredible. The Zimmerman telegram is... Whew. So I'm curious to know, actually, speaking sure. of the telegram itself, what you think of, I'm not sure whether to label it a conspiracy or not. Yeah. Whether that it was crafted. <laughs> I think you know what I'm about to say, whether it was crafted by the British to bring the Americans in because they were struggling to win the war. Right. What do you think about that? Just out of curiosity. You know, um, I, I, I honestly, I straddle the fence on this one. Um, mm -hmm. I could see it being a reality. I could see it being uh, uh, authentic. But at the same time, the British wanted us, and and uh, the British wanted us involved in World War One, and mm -hmm. our president at the time, and and the government was really pushing for for our participation in World War One as well. It all came down to swaying the hearts and minds of the American people. How do you do that? You threaten the American people, and you threaten their homeland, and that's what the Zimmerman telegram did. It was, hey Mexico, we'll give you back all the land lost. In Texas, that that pissed us off. Mm -hmm. That pissed us off, you know. And because it was so pointed at a threat to American sovereignty, a threat to American, and, and that goes back to our roots, right? With the with the revolution, it almost seems like it was manufactured, you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um. So I, you know, I I don't know if I'll ever come to a conclusion on that. The the paranoid uh, conspiracy theorist side of me that it does exist, as small as it is wants mm. it to be manufactured because then it's like fucking Brits, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yeah. At the same time, it's like, and, and Mexico, looking at the history, Mexico was in no place to invade the United States. So mm. it just, it seems like such a, it just seems like such a small thing in retrospect. Mm. Um, but it was enough for, for the United States, for, for the citizens, for us to be like, yo, yo, fuck that. We're, yeah. all right, this means war. And it's like, really, guys? But, I mean, they had, a, they had to have known that Mexico wasn't in the, the exact place to be able to launch an invasion of the Not United States. Not at all. So, Not at all. So, I mean, how did that even work? Like, I don't want to get too off topic here, but, oh, yeah. I, I I think it just goes to that back to that American mentality where it's like, you don't step on our toes. How dare you? Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, I mean, this <laughs> yeah. country was built on a couple things, and I it was built on alcohol, genocide, slavery, guns, mm -hmm. and uh, fuck you for the most part. You know, yeah. I, so I I think that it was just the insult, the the idea that somebody mm -hmm. was going to take back our land. It was like absolutely not. Yeah, you know, manifest uh, destiny, right? Yeah, yeah. We absolutely. take, we don't give. Uh, it's just, it's very old school American thinking. What is Dogger Bank? What the hell is a dogger? Was there something unique about the location that led the Imperial German Navy to choose it for their operation? I had all of these questions and there's quite a bit of history to Dogger Bank, some of which is still relevant to the 2000s. Dogger Bank is about 17,600 square kilometers with a water depth ranging from 15 to 36 meters or 50 to 120 feet. It isn't terribly deep. According to Britannica, the name Dogger Bank was first written in history in the 1600s and was likely derived from the word Dogger, which was a medieval two-masted vessel that was used simply for trawling fish. 
Dogger Bank remains an important area today as it produces high levels of phytoplankton. It's also now designated as a marine nature reserve. And Greenpeace in 2020 dropped a number of large granite boulders in the area to ward off any fishing trawlers attempting to take advantage of the large fish population it is home to. There were four battles fought at Dogger Bank, each named, you guessed it, the Battle of Dogger Bank. Super creative. The first was in 1696, during the Nine Years' War, when a French fleet defeated a Dutch force of five ships and its convoy. The second was in 1781, during the Fourth Anglo-Dutch War between a Royal Navy squadron and, again, the Dutch. Two occurred during World War I. The first was the topic of this episode in 1915, and the second was a year later in 1916, also fought between the Royal Navy and the German High Seas Fleet. There was one other event worth mentioning. During the Russo-Japanese War, 1904-1905, Russian naval ships opened fire on British fishing boats, trawling Dogger Bank for the fish population, supposedly having mistaken them for Japanese torpedo boats on October 21st, 1904, and what became known as the Dogger Bank Incident. Next to that, there are several shipwrecks in the area, and in 1931, it was also home to the largest earthquake ever recorded in the United Kingdom, the 1931 Dogger Bank Earthquake measuring in at 6.1 on the Richter scale. Wow, okay, when you said early before we started recording that Dogger Bank has a lot of history, you meant it. Wow, Yeah. that's incredible. I was really surprised to learn some of this. I mean, we're, we're talking Russo-Japanese War, we're talking back mm-hmm. into the 1600s, um, and then two Battle of Dogger Banks in World War One alone, both between the, yeah, the Royal Navy and the German High Seas Fleet. So uh, pretty, pretty interesting area. And it, it is a huge nature reserve today um, and uh, has a, a very important fish population outside of the phytoplankton. It, it, it's a rich area. So pretty cool. What made Dogger Bank the site of multiple naval battles was simply its location. Located in the North Sea, about 100 kilometers off the coast of the UK, it is almost perfectly centered between the ports of several European countries. The United Kingdom, Norway, Denmark, Germany, the Netherlands, Belgium, and France all have coastlines that meet the North Sea. It is really no wonder that it has been host to numerous naval events. In the case of the 1915 battle, the Germans were to pass near Dogger Bank during their approach to the east coast of Britain. As Sam mentioned, British leadership were aware of the planned attack through the efforts of Room 40, and so sent a naval force to intercept the Germans in response. To put the battle in perspective, let's begin with the strength of the Imperial German Navy versus that of the British Royal Navy. British forces were commanded by Admiral Earl Beatty, a seasoned naval officer. Admiral Beatty began service in 1884 and eventually retired in 1927 after gaining the highest rank in the Royal Navy, Admiral of the Fleet. The British were divided into two squadrons. The first consisting of HM ships, New Zealand, and Indomitable, and the second HM ships, Lion, Tiger, and Princess Royal. The Harwich force of light cruisers and destroyers, about 35 in total, as well as the Dover first light cruiser squadrons, which supported this force. That's better. Missing a word there. Franz Ritter von Hipper. What a name. Yeah, but that's it. You nailed it. Fucking hell. Okay. German forces were under the command of Admiral Franz Ritter von Hipper. Hipper was also seasoned by the time of Dogger Bank, having joined the Imperial German Navy in 1881. 
He retired in 1918 after Germany lost in World War One. It should be noted here the respect that is often found among service members even when they were once enemies. When Hibbert died in 1932, Admiral Beatty is quoted as having said, quote, I am very sorry. One would like to express one's regrets for the passing of a gallant officer and a great sailor, end quote. Though enemies, these two sailors clearly appreciated the command ability of the other. The German squadron, which also included cruisers and destroyers, was made up of the SM ships Der Finger, Moltke, Seidlitz, and Blücher. German forces were further supported by over a dozen torpedo boats and a Zeppelin. Wow, a Zeppelin. Yeah, right? (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, I've never been, like, to across the capabilities of, of, of Zeppelin exactly all i know is what it really looks like like the huge like balloon in the air yeah. i don't really know how it could possibly i don't know does it have like it's got guns it, no guns? it's got guns okay. and and yeah machine you know what well we should do an episode on zeppelins we should that sounds because awesome i'd love to <laughs> the, Ger- the germans use some crazy crazy unconventional stuff but the zeppelins mm-hmm. those were cool and as a huge fan of the band led zeppelin um I had to throw that in there, but yeah, yeah, they, they were useful um, uh, for, for a time, for a time. Okay. All right. Well, we'll definitely have to uh, look into that in another episode. Yeah. Super cool. On 24th of January, 1915, a British force led by Admiral Beatty intercepted a German squadron at the Dogger Bank in the North Sea. The battle began quickly. British officer John Overy of HMS Tiger described the action that followed. Let's take a listen. My action station was a very good one. It was in the conning tower. Actually, I was messenger to the captain who was in the conning tower, in charge of the whole ship, of course. We actually got into contact with the German battlecruisers just after nine. The captain was in the conning tower, and I was outside looking out for submarines. At about 9.20, we sighted the Germans, and they opened fire on us and we on them. Now, I remember our first salvo, mind you, I was outside the conning tower, blew my hat off. And then, to my relief, the captain sent a messenger saying, come inside the conning tower now. We had turned to port to cut off the blucher, the tiger leading the three ships, and we blasted away at poor blucher, which had stopped, and we fired two torpedoes at her at point-blank range, and I saw one hit. I saw the Former's turret blow up and the mast come down. She had stopped and was listing. We then turned away back home, leaving Blucher sinking, and she actually sank within view. Lieutenant A.D. Boyle, who served in HMS New Zealand, also recalled, quote, Daylight went to action stations and shortly afterwards sighted smoke to the northwest of us. Went off to see what it was. At 0800, we sighted enemy ships on Port Bow and gave chase. There appeared to be four battle cruisers, four light cruisers, and lots of destroyers. You could only see their smoke, and they were going full speed for Heligoland. Gradually overhaul them. At 0900, HMS Lion, which was leading HMS Tiger and Princess Royal, opened fire at 20,000 yards. I could only see their masts and funnels. HMS New Zealand and HMS Indomitable came last in the line. HMS New Zealand, keeping up with the flag and Indomitable, lagged astern being a slower ship. Our guns were only sighted to 18,500 yards and the Indomitable less. 
It was a perfect clear day with very little wind and what there was in the right direction for us. In fact, the position for the fight was ideal. End quote. Thus began the first clash of battle cruisers. The British cruiser HMS Aurora made contact with the German ships while it was still dark and started an engagement. Admiral Beatty could see the German squadron in the distance as it started to get lighter, but he was unable to hold their eastward retreat. As a result, the encounter evolved into a fierce pursuit. The British had the edge because they could go at a speed at roughly 28 knots compared to the Germans' 27, but only 23 knots in the case of the Blücher. Additionally, the British 2nd Battle Squadron, over which Admiral Hipper, the commander of the German force, had been briefed, had a large speed advantage. Heavy shells struck Lyon 15 times, including twice in rapid succession by the Deflinger, one of which rendered the condenser inoperable. This was an important hit since the ship would eventually have to stop running if the condenser was not functioning. The condenser is a heat exchanger which essentially removes the latent heat from exhaust steam so that it condenses and can be pumped back into the boiler. And despite this, the British were winning the battle and it appeared like every German ship would be sunk. Seidlitz had suffered significant damage but was still in the line, but Blücher had suffered severe damage and was obviously doomed. Admiral Beatty later claimed that he observed the supposed submarine periscope in person. As a result, he gave the order to turn 90 degrees away from the Germans, as was customary. However, this widened the field of fire, and the Germans withdrew. By this time, the line had stopped, was without electricity, all but two of its signal halyards removed. Then, Admiral Beatty gave the orders to course northeast and attack the rear of the enemy. Unfortunately, they were both made effective at the same time, giving the phrase, attack the enemy's rear to the northeast, its meaning. Lieutenant Boyle recalled the end of the battle, quote, We were not hit once all day. A signal has come to say that engineer Captain Taylor and nine men were killed and three officers wounded in Tiger. I do not know of any other casualties. I do not think the Princess Royal was hit, but there seemed to be some hits on the lion. During the show, Admiral Beatty hoisted its flag in a destroyer when the lion was hit and afterwards Princess Royal where he is now. We are at present keeping near the lion in case she is attacked. Personally, I do not feel very satisfied about the day. End quote. That sort of sums up the Battle of Dogger Bank. The battle itself was not of great length. It lasted maybe three hours, and a lot of it was the British Royal Navy giving chase to the German squadron. However, much was learned from the battle, and there's plenty to analyze. For one, Dogger Bank made clear that British battlecruisers were vulnerable to plunging fire. Plunging fire is gunfire fired at trajectory, which causes the round to fall on the intended target from above. The HMS Lion... Admiral Beatty's flagship was fired on by the Durflinger, which used plunging fire rather than direct fire. And as a result, penetration of the lion's hull was achieved, and the flagship badly damaged, which, as Sam stated, quickly put it out of action. The condenser was broken, and running the ship would cause the boiler to overheat, since the condenser wasn't functioning. I actually found a model of the Durflinger, which fired on the HMS Lion and uh, knocked it out of battle, pictured in one of my Smithsonian military history encyclopedias, and I was really excited because I learned a few things about it. The Durflinger was commissioned in 1914. It was 210.4 meters in length and reached a top speed of 26.5 knots. And as Sam stated, the British Royal Navy squadron was much faster than the Germans, and there's evidence of that here. It was constructed with a 12-inch thick armored belt at the waterline, but also had double-skinned bulges along its lower hull, and what that did was it gave it increased protection against torpedoes. The book goes on to state that these fourth-generation German battlecruisers were far superior to the Royal Navy's versions. 
Ships like the HMS Lion had armored belts that ranged from only 4 to 9 inches thick, as opposed to the Germans' 12. It is clear that the German ships had superior armor, and this is what made plunging fire so potent against the Royal Navy, and similar issues were experienced later at the Battle of Jutland in 1916. Though not necessarily a takeaway the crew was pleased with, the beating the Blucher took was a testament to the durability of German warships. According to gunnery records, the Blucher took some 70 shells and 7 torpedoes. The ship was sunk, but it took an incredible amount of damage to actually sink the armored cruiser. Blucher only landed 3 hits in return, one each on Lion, Tiger, and Indomitable, and fired no more than 12 shells during the whole battle. As may be assumed, Blucher had the highest casualties. Julian Corbett, the then official naval historian in the UK, recorded that of Blucher's crew of 1,206 men, 792 were killed and 45 wounded. The remaining 234 men were taken prisoner after the battle. In total, over 2,100 shells were fired during the Battle of Dogger Bank, and it wasn't what one may consider to be one-sided. The distribution of the approximately 2,100 shells fired was nearly even between the British and German forces. Casualties, however, were not quite as balanced, largely due to losses from the Blucher. The Imperial German Navy saw over 1,000 men either killed or wounded. The Blucher was sunk, and the Seydlitz battlecruiser endured heavy damage, and over 150 men were killed in action on the Seydlitz alone. The damage to the Seydlitz and the vulnerability of below-deck magazines informed the Imperial German Navy of their ship's weaknesses, and they began taking steps to correct this after Dogger Bank. In contrast, Royal Navy men killed or wounded totaled just under 50, and none of their ships were sunk. Though the HMS Lion was badly disabled and the Tiger did receive appreciable damage. That is a lot of casualties um, from the Imperial German Navy for just a few hours. I don't know what your opinion is on that, Mike, but that is a lot of death. Yeah, it really is, and, and most of it came from the Blucher. Uh, you know, as was stated, it's incredible how many shells that that, that ship sustained, how many hits it took uh, before it actually was sent to, to the to the bottom of the North Sea. I'm going to say, like, it's interesting to kind of try and understand how they would have lost against um, the British Royal Navy. Like, I know we mentioned that the cruisers and destroyers were much faster than that of the Imperial German Navy. But it makes me wonder, like, what really went wrong? Like, was it the manufacturing of the, the ships themselves were just not up to standard or, you know? Right. Are you talking about the, the manufacture of the British ships, yes? No, of the Imperial German Navy. Like, why? Oh, yeah, I suppose. The... Yeah, well, in the case of the Blucher, I mean, there was nothing wrong with the manufacture. It's just that I don't know if it was a concerted, you know, um, what we call a... a unity of effort where mm -hmm. maybe there was communication where it was, you know, target the blucher, uh, because mm -hmm. 70, 70 shells and seven torpedoes, no other ship came close to taking that many hits, not even half of that. Mm. Uh, it was clearly targeted. So that, I mean, I think that likely accounts for the beating that it took, but again, with that mm -hmm. 12 inch armored plating, um, they were able to sustain quite a bit of damage before it was actually sunk. Whereas in contrast, HMS Lion took very few hits, but all it took was that one plunging fire shell to disable mm. the ship. So um, that, that four to nine inches of, of armor that the British had versus that mm. of the Germans clearly had, you know, took a toll 
Um, I think I think had the British not had the element of surprise and been there to intercept, um, and th- the roles would have been reversed. I think the Germans would have absolutely yeah. obliterated the British squadron. Just just mm-hmm. when it when it comes down to the armor and when it when it comes yeah. to the yeah. So obviously the Brits knew they had to concentrate a lot of their attention on the Blucher, I guess. Yeah, and they did, a, they did a great job of that, clearly. Another major takeaway from the battle is specific to German intelligence failures, or rather their lack of transmission security. German leadership was unsure as to how the British squadron had arrived at Doggerbank at dawn on the 24th, seemingly prepared to intercept the German attack squadron. Rather than look for breaches in their communications, the Germans exercised a bit of unfounded paranoia, and determined that there must have been a spy at their North Sea naval base on the coast of Germany, which is a stretch. There was some speculation that the sheer size of the British squadron that intercepted the Germans at Dogger Bank did suggest that the Royal Navy had advanced notice of the operation, but it was dismissed. So, no, transmissions weren't intercepted. There's a spy. The battle had quite a large impact on German naval operations moving forward. The German Emperor, Kaiser Wilhelm II, was so concerned with the sustainability of the Imperial German Navy after Dogger Bank that he actually ordered all possible risks to surface vessels to be entirely avoided. But what does that mean exactly? Well, after Dogger Bank, the Imperial German Navy refrained from attempts at re-engaging with the Royal Navy with surface ships for more than a year. Admiral Beatty and the British may have been disappointed with the outcome of Dogger Bank, but the effect it had on the Germans is worth consideration. Just going back to the, uh, your earlier comment about um, how the Germans were adamant that it was a spy and wasn't an intercept on their communications, it was so fascinating to me because, I don't know, I just feel like there being a spy would have been way more of a stretch than them simply intercepting communications. I mean, right. why was so? why was that so easily cancelled out when it's such a plausible thing that could have happened i mean it it did happen (laughs) they didn't know they had ewing and like room 40 and this whole operation right but i mean you know history repeats itself as they say and you see the same thing in world war ii amongst the japanese and the germans where no there's no way they cracked the enigma machine or there's no way that they you know um uh operation magic broke broke the purple machine Mm -hmm. uh the purple cipher and it's Oh, it was happenstance. It's coincidence, and it was mm-hmm. so, there was so much trust, and and their encryption machines, and in their their security when it came to yeah. intelligence and and transmission that they they just dismissed it. And you see the roots of that here at Dogger Bank, which I found absolutely mm-hmm. incredible. But at the same time, it's like for fuck's sake, do you guys not learn? Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, obviously not, especially if they took that kind of thought into World War Two as well. Yeah, Sorry, I mean, and then yeah, and then just... they 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 go on to say, you know what? Maybe maybe we just avoid surface contact. One year, no surface contact with mm. with with the British Royal Navy. I mean that that's a huge as small as this battle was mm. for for Kaiser Wilhelm II to go. You know what? This is not a good idea. Let's stick to the ground. Let's stick to the ground fights. Don't engage the Royal Navy. That I mean that's that's incredible. So, so essentially, when you think about it, this somewhat minor battle on the surface actually had a significant impact on naval warfare in World War One. because from this point onwards, they started using primarily U-boats, right? Correct, right, exactly. Yeah, so again, you know, I, I hadn't heard of Dogger Bank prior to, to, to the mm. research, and 
you know, your, your, your proposed uh, topic for this episode. Um, but the, the effects of Dogger Banker. Mm. Wow. You know, this is a good one. I mean, so that's it for, for Hard Tech episode 21, the Battle of Dogger Bank. And I'm not usually interested in naval battles or maritime events, usually. Uh, but this one really won me over, Sam. And I mean, the intercepted transmissions, the eyewitness accounts, the history of the location, they're, they're, they're all added bonuses. All right, everybody. Tune in next week for episode 22 as we venture back to 19th century Japan for a glimpse into the Meiji Restoration and the topic of the episode, Origins of the Imperial Japanese Army. As always, thank you for listening, and remember to keep your hardtack dry. Dry.